0: I'm Dean Detloff, and you're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. On Critical Faith, we explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more, as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component to so many of our lives. Along the way, we also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities, and communities. We did that especially last week when we heard Matt Bernico's lecture, Decolonizing Christian Education. Matt's the Assistant Professor of Communication and Media Studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, I interview Matt a little bit more about some of those themes in his talk, And Matt fields some questions from the audience who originally heard it as part of our Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship series. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. It helps people find us, and it keeps us on their radar. You can find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Facebook at the Institute for Christian Studies and on Twitter at Inscr, I-N-S-C-H-R. Um, so I have some questions that we can use to get into some of the themes that Matt brought up in the talk, especially maybe some, um, specific, like practical things that we can think about as people at the Institute for Christian Studies. Um, we could try to imagine what this might look like for us, uh, connect some of these themes. So I might make you repeat things that you've already said or even repeated already in your talk, um, but I think for the better. So I'll do that. And then after that, I will open it up for Q&A from people who are here. So feel free to write your questions down and hold on to them.
1: This is going to be so weird. Dean and I do a podcast together, and usually I'm really um, used to, uh, when I don't know the answer to a question, asking Dean, but now I can't, because he's going to ask me all the questions. That's alright. It's not a great feeling. on the hot
0: seat. <laughs> I, might ju- I might just ask you. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> that. That's alright. Uh, cool. So, Matt, your paper is all about decolonial theory um and in the beginning and throughout you made a really useful attempt i think to try to define some of those terms but i'm gonna ask you to do that again could you just give us a brief summary of uh what decolonial theory is all about for people who aren't familiar and maybe talk a little bit more about why you're interested as a person in media studies or as a person at greenville or whatever
1: yeah uh okay so decolonial theory (laughs) like like the elevator pitch for decolonial theory decolonial theory is so hard because like it is huge. A diverse amount of people are doing it, right? Not just people in Latin America, people in um, in Asia, people in Africa, people in the Middle East. It's it's hard to sort of define because it's kind of like a discourse that's going on, right? Um, my entryway into decolonial theory and what it is is through this guy Walter Manolo, Nelson Madano Medo- uh, uh, Torres, and uh, Santiago Castro Gomez, and those three guys are they're all sort of uh, Latin American scholars. Um, sociologists philosophers so that's kind of my entryway into the discussion so if i had entered in with some different thinkers i would probably have a different answer to this question but for me um being like a a white person in the united states it's it's helpful kind of uh it's a helpful analysis of the effect that the systems i benefit from uh have on in like global context Uh, reading it is kind of like reading it is kind of interesting like it's kind of like um it's kind of like a way to sift out ideas from one another like um like it just reminds me of like going to the playground and playing in the sandbox and like scooping up some sand and like sifting it right so some things some things get filtered through and some things don't so for me decolonial theory is a helpful way to start separating out ideas that um are colonial from ideas that are like are local or or um you know have have uh, history it's a way to put um it's a way to put a geography with an idea or with a way of thinking. Something that uh, Western thought is not good at.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, so, why do you think decolonial theory is important for Christians in particular? I mean, there's you know, it's one thing to sort of study the things that your friends are studying, right? Uh, but then there's there's a really unique Christian role in all the colonial projects that you reference in the in the paper. So, could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I think it's important. Uh, it's important for Christians because Christianity has such a bad track record. <laughs> um, sorry, that's like a that's a uh, maybe an easy way out. Christianity is bad. No, um, it's not bad, but it's done a really it's done a lot of sort of negative things and has contributed to colonialism. It's contributed to the oppression of people. Um, that being the case, there are still extremely good things that Christianity has done. There's a liberatory message in the gospel, um, and I think that decolonial theory should. Something that like Christians can use to sort of better understand the world that we live in um, and understand the ways that uh, Christian supremacy, Western supremacy have sort of impacted the world. So I think it's important because it's a way to uh, practice. I don't know. I said, I said in the paper, it's a way to practice neighborliness. And I like that idea a lot. Um, it's a way to practice. Um, I mean, like, you know, if you went to a friend's house and you barge in the front door and then you said, "Hey, how's it going?" And then you like then you just talked over them for half an hour. Like that's not very neighborly. But if you walked in their house or you knock on the door and you're, like they answer the door and then they invite you in, and then you're like, "Hey, how's it going?" And then you listen to them. Right? That's kind of neighborly, and that's kind of that's the way I see decolonial theory is. It's a way of like listening to other people who you've just not listened to for most of the like world history. Mm. Um, it's important for me too, as like uh, i be a person that teaches at a Christian university, um, because uh, I mean. Uh, Greenville University is in the middle of nowhere, absolutely nowhere. It's kind of by St. Louis, but also um, just in a sea of corn. Um, but that, even though that's the case, we have international students on campus. And um, I, I don't know, I don't want just to turn them into sort of like Western subjects. I want to I want to know what they need to learn. I want to know what they have to offer. And I think that the only way we can even do that and respecting sort of where they're coming from is uh, understanding uh, coloniality and how we perpetuate it for institutions.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so could you talk a little bit about why Christians have a hard time sort of taking decolonial theory on board? I mean, as far as I know, I can't think of a, a ton of Christian institutions, some seminaries in my mind, but not a lot of Christian institutions that care too much, uh, or or even are aware, I guess, of, of that problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to even know how much any institution, like, authentically cares about this topic or this problem, like... I mean, in doing some of this research, uh, my research partner, John, and I have been kind of going through different schools in our, like, area, like, different regional schools. So uh, Christian Colleges, I don't know, maybe you guys have been to some of them, but, like, they're, they're uh, a part of this organization called the CCCU. Um, so we've just been going through those schools that are specifically affiliated with the CCCU and trying to figure out, like, who, like, what schools have, like, academic policy about this or or um like how they kind of parse this like sort of like global perspectives thing out and it's usually like do you have like a global like at best it's like curriculum level like do you have a person from a different country on your syllabus do you have a person of color on your syllabus you know that kind of thing so i mean first of all it's just it's just hard to know who authentically cares already um i mean i'm sure there are other like faculty like me but i haven't found them yet um but I think Christians at large are hard, have a hard time dealing with this because Christians can be really naive about the idea of truth um, that like like Christianity is a is a universal religion, right? Like no Jew, no Greek kind of thing where it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from, you can be saved if you just do these things or whatever. And I think that makes us naive about the cultural situations that we form our knowledge in. So I, I think Christians are bad at it because we think that we we think that we, you, you know we think that our thought has no bounds but it's constricted by our cultural situations we just can't get over that if we can't recognize it
0: uh i appreciate that you brought up the question of truth and this is something that people at ICS yes, have done a lot of thinking about as well and epistemology and thinking about what that means uh so i'll ask you to basically i could just i guess uh just expand on what you were just saying so a lot of Christians think that there's one truth with a capital T, right? And there's specific, obvious access to it, and that's all you got to do is like get the uh, I don't know get get that one universal truth correct, and all the rest follows. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're making a case for a more plural way of thinking about how truth gets produced, or got produced, or how it could be produced differently. Um, if I'm hearing you right. Uh, So how do you think Christians can relate to that plurality of of knowing uh, and kind of hold those things in tension, right? About having these commitments that they're trying to hold on to, but also uh, letting themselves be troubled by the way that those very commitments have really ruined (laughs) other people's lives.
1: Yeah, it's so Christianity and sort of like the like enlightenment and secularism are all tangled up in this really hard way. And uh, I don't know. Probably can't get into that, and I, I don't want to. Um, but they're all tangled up in this way, so that we we have like this like implicit sort of Cartesian understanding of the world, even though we're always trying to act against that when we talk about embodiment or something, right? But we always, you know, it's it's the idea that we always, I think, therefore I am. Um, the the helpful kind of uh, diagnostic that uh, Walter Manolo gives isn't is that like you know I think therefore I am is kind of silly. Instead, we should say, like, I am where I think, or I think where I do. I think it's like, a chapter in one of these books. Um, and But but because we can't really get away of the I think therefore I am, that universal understanding of, like, that we can just understand the world sort of visually and conceptually, um, we have a very naive understanding of truth. But it's so funny because, like, we actually trick ourselves. Like, we think that that's the case, or those are the kind of, like, um, those are the contours of our, of our perception of the world. But at the same time, Christians, like, are always kind of figuring out the cultural situations that knowledge is produced in. Like, I don't know in, in like our Christian undergraduate education, if you have to take a Bible class, like that's what you're doing, right? Like you have to figure out sort of, if you do like an exegesis, you're figuring out the cultural situations of the Bible and then trying to like think about what, what they mean. Right. So Christians do it. We just don't, don't really understand that. Um, like we, we have to, we look at the Bible and we try to understand the specific uh, cultural situation um, but then we don't think of ourselves as actually being in a specific cultural situation. So we, we don't apply the logic of exegesis to like our own lives or that perspective to our own lives. So I think if we, I mean, think about the exegesis we do in the Bible and scripture, the exegesis we do in other sort of like academic texts. But then we think of we have to like exegete our own lives, There's something there.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of something you said early in your talk about, um, I think you're quoting someone else, but talking about how we should think about what we do as sort of uh, Euro-American ethnic studies. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Yeah. Uh, What does that, I mean, what would it look like for people to think that way, right? One thing we were just talking about the other day, Matt and I, uh, was the TV show The Good Place. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but there's there's a philosophy character, philosopher in the show. And um, he is from Africa, but all the philosophy that he teaches in the show, are, it's all, like, white uh, Anglo-American or European philosophy. I'm like, analytic philosophy. Yeah, too. yeah. Uh, the worst. Yeah. No, it's okay. <laughs> but it's strange because he never, at least so far, or at least to my knowledge that I can remember, he never quotes... Someone from his own country or, yeah. or someone bound up in the liberation struggles in his own country. So, uh, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? What would it mean for us to think of what we do reading whatever as Euro-American ethnic studies? Yeah. Um,
1: it's kind of a funny idea. Uh, it's a funny idea that I think a lot of academics like, will just like inherently not like. Because, I mean, um, if you're teaching in a university, right, you probably have a PhD or you just have a master's degree, right, and you've worked, you've worked so hard. To kind of get there and you've like self-promoted yourself you've been in, like a hundred terrible job interviews right so you have this like sort of sense of self-importance like the thing that you do is like in, it's intensely important to you and you want it to be intensely important to other people so if you want it if you start like maybe demoting it like a little bit you mm-hmm. might like it might be bad like sort of internally but it's a fun practice to think through like what context are they actually speaking in um or like how is plato appropriated into the western canon even like is is plato like necessarily sort of a cool like can you read Plato in a decolonial way or something is, is there is there something going on there um we're just taking into the context like Derrida writes in in France right like that's just something you can think about you put a place with a name a place with a thing and it, it, maybe you even just like after this is over go find all your big stack of books get a map out of the world and just like start like like make a little mark on the map where people are from that you're reading and like it'll be surprising to you. So like maybe mm-hmm. you you know you you study theology and that's cool, uh, but you study like I don't know medieval Europe like Western European theology and that's not to say it's not important. It's just to say that it has a geography, it has a place, it has a context, and those things are those contexts are important.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, so we're already kind of entering into this a little bit. Uh, how do? You, how would? Christian educators start to think about what it would mean to decolonize their pedagogical practice. So you kind of reference things like syllabi and curricula, but then you also, every time you say that, you kind of take it back, right? So Like do that, but also something else. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about both of those things. I mean, what does it mean to um, responsibly decolonize a a syllabus, right, without having sort of tokenized voices? And then secondly, what are some of those things you think or that you've been reading that uh, might sort of hint toward that larger eschatological vision you present at the end huh yeah it's it's hard because i mean we're, pro- we're probably
1: speaking like between disciplines a little bit um i don't know i don't know what it would look like to, to decolonize a philosophy uh syllabus or something um uh my my co-writer here john brittingham uh he started teaching a global philosophy course and that was kind of the way he started to figure this out and, and parse out what this looks like so for him, he needed more than just like uh, he needed more than just like a person on a syllabus, right? He needed an entire class that was oriented towards um, uh, finding these other voices and kind of contextualizing them. So he has a he has a class that's you know it's global philosophy. So one semester they they only read uh, Latin American philosophers, and one semester they only read Chinese philosophers, right? So that's kind of the way. That's one way to do it. I mean, I think that putting like putting a token person on the syllabus is like that's the person of color on your syllabus is like i mean it's a good start like if that's all you got go for it um sometimes passing those things through are hard but um if you have the flexibility just take an entire class and like and get into it um for my own syllabi i mean um this is probably less relatable uh i just uh so i'm doing a class this semester that's uh, about um, media theory and decolonial theory. So we're reading, um, so like some a handful of these like science fiction uh, novels from South America, and talking about how they either fit or don't fit into sort of the technical imaginary of uh, people from this like sort of Euro-American ethnic studies area. So um, I, in that class, I'm trying to I'm trying to draw out sort of the tension and the difference, and I think that's also pretty helpful. Um, there's that there are different approaches to thinking through those things. So it it will look different for different departments and for different classes and different programs. Uh, something I did not know and was not prepared for uh, coming out of grad school is that like building a class is really kind of an art form, not one I'm entirely good at, but it's like lots of compositional things that you have to go, go. I mean, you're thinking through the sort of like the, the ways your students will engage with these different texts and you want to balance them out just right. Um, so finding, finding sort of the themes and the ebb and flow of, Uh, discourses you can bring together seems important so um, in terms of like how you make a good sort of decolonized syllabus I don't know it just depends on like where you're at Um, just try including different people uh, from a different part of the world and see what happens maybe that's a good place to start. Um, Institutions though can do a lot of things so the place I'm at is not super unique it's like every other I'm sorry, it is actually very unique. That's the marketing piece now. Um, <laughs> it is so unique. Let me tell you about it. Uh, it's very similar to other sort of Christian liberal arts colleges, though. It's small, has like a thousand students. Um, it's in you know a, a small rural area. It's really similar to lots of other places that are like it. Um, but there are there are really interesting sort of idiosyncrasies that play out in the ways that we treat international students that are completely bizarre. So, um, uh, there is a tendency that's being slowly revised um we have we have uh we have sort of a gateway into the institution that's called university pathways so uh, we get students from uh asia and africa and i guess those two continents specifically i guess that's where most of our students are coming from but uh we have a high percentage sort of like the demographic breakdown is that we have lots of students from china that come that's a kind of like the place that we have the best uh institutional relationship with and uh and instead of, like, client university pathways or international students, people just say things like, well, the Chinese students. And it's, like, kind of, like, well, that's dumb because that's not really true. You're just kind of making a sweeping generalization. Um, so, I, I mean, thinking through the ways that you treat international students, international faculty on campus is a big deal towards decolonization. Um, are they, like, you know, are they, are they there in an active part of your community or are they there to generate revenue? Or are they there to um, – are they, are they, like, a vibrant part of the discourse on campus? Like, how does that work out? um so i think that's important um there's also lots of economic stuff going on too where i mean just some some i mean like i said in the paper right like some departments that are profit creating get emphasized over others and i think that's unfortunate and too bad and only really uh makes the exacerbates the problem
0: yeah uh that makes sense to me um could you talk a little bit about how some of your students have responded to these efforts so you teach undergraduates mostly right and yeah. diverse students uh like you we've talked before I know that you have some international students and then some not international students um I mean how do you find these kind of experiments are going how does John find these experiments going yeah um
1: I'm pretty pleased it's sorry it's good no <laughs> uh it's been it's been a pretty- su- pretty successful sort of experiment um I don't know if you all remember when you were undergrads, um, but it's hard to get undergrads to do anything. Um, it's just like you hope they read whatever and show up to class. Um, so they've been reading it, they've been showing up to class, um, they engage with it, and they think it's pretty interesting. I think what's what's interesting, even um, the language of decolonial, like de- decolonial theory, and even like the um, like the sort of uh, like like Walter MinoLo. One one of my classes read Walter Manolo. And even, like, the very conservative students found a way to connect to it because it wasn't, like, it wasn't politically charged, like, the way they see, like, media and, the new like, you know, news stories politically charged. So they were able to, like, connect with it and kind of even be swayed by sort of the importance of it in ways that I think they wouldn't have been if I had them read, like, something explicitly Marxist or whatever, right? So um, it's been going really well. I mean, they respond to it in ways that um, they, they definitely don't respond to, like, other stuff with. So it's been good.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Uh, and maybe I'll, I'll just ask you like a final question and we'll throw it open to everybody else for questions. Um, you mentioned a connection between epistemology and politics throughout your paper and we've been touching on it already in here uh, but what do you think it would mean for Christian institutions to take that connection seriously? So the epistemology piece seems like something that you could slowly work at over time by diversifying departments or whatever but that politics piece seems much more difficult, right? Because there are accrediting bodies and there are interests of capital and all those kinds of things mm-hmm. that work together to prevent um, other political imaginations in Christian institutions. Uh, do you have any ideas for sort of how one might start thinking about that or even pitching it to other faculty or, or building a community of learning that understands that connection really in, an, in a meaningful way?
1: Yeah, it's so difficult. So... I, I mean, I think so, so. This this conversation about decolonial theory and decolonizing education has been going on sort of in like a lot of secular institutions for a long time. Uh, Christians have just like not caught on um, until exactly right now. <laughs> so um, I think it would be good to to start getting more people on board with just the just just the project of decolonial theory and thinking through how it works in Christian higher ed. Um, it is important because. Uh, I mean, our, what we count as legitimate knowledge, what we count as true and believable, um, completely shapes what we think is possible politically. I mean, the, the Zapatistas are, are right, right? Like, a, another world is possible, but only if you can think of another world. Um, and the only way that you can actually think of another world is thinking sort of plurally in the sense of um, other sources of knowledge, who, who else could be possibly legitimate. I really do like the the term pluriversity instead of university, kind of referencing that the knowledge isn't sort of monolithic or singular; that it comes from these different places. So um, I think that's worth pursuing. Uh, epistemology makes us—I mean, like if, if we if we widen the scope of like what could possibly be true, or, or like what uh, who we're willing to listen to at least—maybe is another way to think about it. I think we'll have a lot wider. Uh, sort of reference for what is politically possible uh that being said though it's it's really difficult too because epistemology is like um i mean we i think we we experience epistemology in a few levels right like we read texts and like we kind of think through epistemology in that way too but material culture has an epistemology in it as well um i guess that's kind of my entry into the conversation a lot of times too i'm a media studies person so like what i care about are like the weird devices that we end up using and the ways that we build perspectives into them so um figuring out I think not just sort of the discourse and how to get people interested in, in like the conversation, but, but also sort of being creative in the way that we engage with technology and art and kind of can make provoking things. Is, seems like a good, a good way to start.
0: That's great. Thanks. Um, so for the, this next mm-hmm. bit, if you have a question, feel free to ask it. Uh, if you feel comfortable, it would be great to have you ask it into the microphone. Which I'll swing conveniently over to this empty chair. Um, so you can even sit and ask it, uh, but that would be great. If you don't feel comfortable, that's totally fine. Um, but that helps us. We're we're going to put this audio together so that other people can hear it. So um, instead of having just Matt responding to a, a weird dropped-in voice later on, it would be nice to have your own voice. Um, so I'm going to swing that over. And if you have a question, feel free to come on up here.
2: Um, a couple of questions. Um, just based on my own experience of what happens in Latin America with these issues. Um there is a uh, a kind of an inner desire to replicate or create another canon so the re- the resistance to kind of colonial uh education is to create another colonial project within those institutions so I- i'll give you maybe two examples um if you go to philosophy departments in colombia you will find uh, two lines of latin american thought one of them then rebuild kind of a marxist canon through the lens of Latin American thinkers, or another line of schooling that created another canon that is very kind of neoliberal and and avoids the the Marxist influence, um, and it seems like through your presentation that it is kind of that desire of creating that canon and that an awareness around what the canon does, um, what what does violence to to the students and especially if you're coming from a minority group. Um, that's that's one of the aspects of my question and see what, what your experience is of that and what you can tell us. And the second one is, you're talking about what happens in the classroom and the curriculum, and but it's something that goes beyond that. It's something about culture, it, university culture. Mm-hmm. Um, I um, I might be in a course that does kind of global philosophy and read people of all different colors, but when I go out and I interact with people, I I am, because of how I sound and what I look like, I'm so geographically placed and I am always encountering the, the universal man mm-hmm. that is speaking to me about philosophy. There, my my answer always needs to be so kind of restricted to, to what I sound like, what I look like, what what my background is, whereas the other person responds as um, Heidegger mm-hmm. or Nietzsche or... Um, so And that's connected also to my own experience in Colombia, that is that to be proficient in Latin American philosophy, you need to go first through the Western canon, even if you're going to do something that is completely unrelated to that. You need to be able to speak that language first and then be able to translate your insight into that mm-hmm. uh, to have a meaningful conversation. And I've encountered some of that here when you when you have like a, a lot of the, the faculties here have brought Aboriginal thinkers to to speak about uh, different issues because of the uh, recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the reaction of the of, of of those attending is different when the when the thinker can speak and structure their own talk in kind of white terms, and and even if it's Aboriginal ideas, but if they are translated, then that's that's how they are better received. So just maybe those three points. What your thoughts on it?
1: uh yeah i mean those those two things are um i mean first of all it's um nice to hear about your experience even though it's it's very frustrating actually um i think it's important to to recognize that as a type of white supremacy um where i mean to to be heard you have to speak this language i think that's uh i mean it it is indicative of the issue of euro-american like Euro-American philosophy, right? Or or Euro-American ethnic studies um, that you have to know these people to even be able to speak or before you can even speak from about like, um, yeah, like philosophers from Columbia, right? You have to be able to talk about Heidegger first. I think that's, I think that is... (laughs) Sorry, I don't want to say it's just, it's bad because it is, but it's like, uh, it is acutely a problem of of white supremacy. I think that's something that we have to be able to call out and think through. Um, The the point you made about uh, about columbia is really interesting about sort of the other canons right and they keep coming up and that's a really hard problem to deal with as well i mean like we like to make canons like that's just, i mean for some reason the thing that people do um so dara's book archive fever is i mean it's about that impulse uh so he's giving uh if you've ever read the book it's really super fun uh, he's giving this talk in uh in Sigmund Freud's house, which is re- that had recently be, uh, was turned into a museum, so he's talking about sort of the impulse to store things away and put them under glass and keep them. Uh, yeah, and that's a thing that people do. I, I think it's 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 interesting and it's a worthwhile thing to start thinking through how we can start letting go of some of those canons, or maybe we can think about how to make our canons more flexible. Um, I don't know exactly how to do that, especially not in philosophy. I mean, in my in my field, I think it's what it comes down to is um, doing things like changing curriculum. Cause that's how, that's how cans get established is, um, you know, you, you have a book list, your students read them and then you hope like maybe those students will go on to sort of reproduce your legacy in their own work or, you know, you'll, you'll have a book list and then you'll write a, a book or a paper about it or something. Right. So finding ways to like make that can more flexible and give a little bit, I think are important. Um, but I guess, unfortunately it is just like a thing that people like to do. Right. Uh, you know create get rid of one archive you make another one um but finding ways to just loosen that grip on the um the gatekeeping aspect of those archives i guess is maybe is, is maybe an important idea i don't know well, how do you think we can do that <laughs> or, or what, what thoughts do you have about that that part of your question like is there a practice that you have in mind
2: no not really i was just uh... It's interesting that new approaches to curriculum building is mm-hmm. it, it is what you're what you're mentioning yeah. in terms of having them re-evaluated every year, every second year, every five years. I don't know what what will be useful, but um, and just responding to kind of the local area, in a sense, uh, not even um, completely kind of cognizant of, oh, we're going to make sure that we include a person of every color in, in the syllabus, but that we represent who is at that given moment part of the university yeah. who are the students who are the professors
1: yeah it is hard sometimes you don't know until your students show up but yeah. but like you don't know until your students show up so like maybe your syllabus should be kind of flexible maybe it'll change but that's i mean difficult too for lots of bureaucratic reasons and good bureaucratic reasons um i don't know exactly how it works at ics i mean dean was telling me a little bit about it and i guess i know a little bit but like i mean you guys have a committee of people who kind of approve uh, like what like a syllabi before it can kind of be taught is that right I think that's a great like a great sort of mechanism that you can have some type of oversight right My institution is completely is extremely loosey goosey in the way we do this It's like um, you're the expert you tell us what you should read and I don't think that's always good I think that we should put some constraints on ourselves about how we make these courses and um, inevitably reproduce our fields so yeah those are great questions I'm sorry I can't really give great answers to them uh,
3: I must say that I don't like the idea of decolonization
4: hmm.
1: I want
3: recolonization. I want us to own that we are a colony and then we can identify that everybody is a colony. Then we can have a conversation going. Decolonization to me often is like, we're in power and now we're going to be nice, condescend and we're going to allow somebody else to have their their voice. and And I think it we have to own that we are not the universal and and that's the same thing that you're doing. That's what you're saying, but decolonization it seems always negative to me.
4: Hmm.
3: What about recolonization? Owning I'm speaking as a male, privileged male, and now I want to engage with people. Who are not privileged as equal partners? I call it withing mutuality. Like decolonization, son, it's a little bit too uh, too negative. It's a bit worse. Have to be totally guilty. Um, no, everybody starts from their own position, and they are, they can uh, speak from the So, how about calling it recolonization?
1: Well, I think it's difficult. So decolonization is not coming from, from me. Um, decolonization is a movement that's happening from um, sort of people all over the world. They're, they're doing it, right? Um, like uh, Walter Manolo, he's a philosopher from Latin America. Santiago Castro Gomez is from, is from Colombia. Um, they choose this word, I think, to emphasize the undoing of like the Western stranglehold on um, the sort of like, my like, uh, yeah. like uh, ways of knowing, I guess, of of the world. Um, it's interesting that you say that's negative. I don't think of it that way, but uh, but yeah, I, I think it, it decolonizing. I mean, at least for me, and I think for people like I mean, people who have privilege, people who are who are white, uh, uh, white straight men. Um, I think that's what decolonization is asking us to do: is to stay with some of that trouble of of recognizing that like we're complicit in this. But I I guess the problem for me is that like, even if you recognize that complicity, it's not like you get out of it. Like, I I guess that's sort of the difficult issue here. I I think for Christians and for just even me personally, that there's not a way out of the situation that you're in. It's not like if if you can renounce your privilege because you still have it. Um, There's, there's not a way that you can really undo this without helping other people undo it at large so i don't know i don't see decolonizing as something as negative it, it to me it's just it's trying to um it, it's trying to undo and then do something else um it's it's also it's um the the re, like uh, recolonizing seems seems rough to me because it's i don't want to do that again that sounds like that's how we got you know it's kind of where we are in the first place so wh- why do you think that yeah i guess tell me tell me more about the the Choice the choice of word of recolonization that's interesting.
5: Well,
3: recolonization is is trying to say. I'm from my position, and I'm not any better than I'm not universal. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm going to uh, spread my wings and you can be under the wings. But I'm going to start a conversation from my particular difference and have a, a conversation going. Um, anyway, I just thought, suddenly starting me, recolonization, um, not, it, it's sort of like uh, Caputo says, we got to remythologize, which is, it's not demythologize, get rid of our difference, our faith. No, it's to recognize that we all have a faith and we're going to have a conversation between. Yeah. But anyway, that.
1: No, I understand. Um, I think that's true. I guess the 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 problem for me, or at least the, the rub for me, is that um, we all have different amount different amounts of power in that sort of scenario. Um, I mean, Western epistemology is sort of the one true way to know things, sort of academically. Um, so to me it seems like rather than starting the conversation we need to be good listeners in the conversation first and I don't think that we've even done that but that's an interesting point to compare it to the remythologization point and that helps me make some more sense of that
6: Good. <laughs> first of all let me apologize for my phone going off during your talk that's okay I I hate being that guy. Um, Usually I turn it off, turn off uh, notifications before (laughs) an event like this or church or something like that. It had to happen to me one day. And I was like, uh, all the old guys not doing too good with technology. Um, Maybe I should have said that when I introduced you everybody, please turn off your phones. I'm going to do that for future talks. It's no big deal. (laughs) Anyway, um, you got to listen to a little bit of pavement, anyway, (laughs) which is my ringtone. Uh, so, you, yeah, quite, your paper raised a lot of sort of epistemic issues. So as a philosopher, I was kind of interested in that. And one thing I, like I, um, I guess what I want to get at is, is there room in decolonial theory for a distinction between an ambition or intention of universality and a presumption of universality? So what I mean by that, the presumption of universality would always come too soon, right? So if you're speaking from a particular Uh, situated viewpoint as we all do and must right so that whole the whole project is about recognizing that and recognizing the partiality of your perspective and that but there seems to be in decolonial theory unless it's just going to become an alternative local canon there seems to be a desire to break open a hegemonic canon in order to more authentically get to a place where we're still talking about something we all hold in common or a world that we all share so the the word the word uh, like you used um the phrase a new global knowledge mm. seeming to be a goal for so you know so my question i guess is coming from a kind of a Rantian place where rather than assuming from your you know western male uh, hegemonic perspective that you have some kind of access to universal truth you rather say okay and i recognize the perspectivalness of that that um deflates it and demotes it but it doesn't delegitimize it as a perspective because it's still one perspective on something we all hold in common but now we open it To an intersubjective discussion by which we secure a more authentic global or common knowledge which and and but then it would be important i guess to see that as always a never finished thing and something that's always ongoing i wonder if you have any thoughts about uh does does decolonialism decolonial theory think about uh legitimate forms of say uh an ambition for universal knowledge or global knowledge as a as a goal or something that we're all moving towards just
1: yeah uh that's a great question okay so i'll try my best to answer this i'll try my very best uh okay so yeah i think if i understand what you're asking um so so like decolonial theory is 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 trying to expose the the supposed groundedness of sort of the universality of the Western way of knowing. It's a really hard thing because that supposed groundedness is not just in our thought, but it is in our material culture. It's in the things that we make. It's in the sort of perspectives that we um, imbue technologically in our lives. Um, I'll talk more about that later. But uh, what, what Decolonial Thought is asking is not for like a, maybe something new, but it's asking for like many. So not a new grounding, but many groundings. So uh, there's this one article... Uh, it's one of the few that are translated into English from Santiago Castro Gomez, a uh, Colombian uh, philosopher I mentioned before. Um, so he's talking about... Um, well, it's this critique of hart Negri's uh, empire, which is not the important part, but that's what it's about. Anyways, um, so he's talking about the, um, the... The really one... The unidirectional conversation that um, these uh, pharmaceutical companies were having with the indigenous people of Colombia. So the pharmaceutical companies would come and they would, um, you know, they'd hire, um, indigenous people from like a tribe or or whatever, and ask them questions about plants in the rainforest. Uh, and, um, and that conversation was, was one direction, right? They're, they're, they're mining them for information to know what they should take or what they should try or like what, um, what type of like thing they want to appropriate for their, their company. Right. And, um, the way that Santiago Castro Gomez goes about it is saying, like, wouldn't it be actually really interesting if, um, you know, so say the pharmaceutical company did come and they asked these questions, but wouldn't it be really interesting if they took way more of what the what the indigenous people of Colombia said seriously? Wouldn't it be interesting if, like, a shaman could talk to a biologist at sort of like the same level, or like they could recognize that they are they have certain differences, but that they both have a certain groundedness in a in a place? So, I, I guess the the presumption of universality is is kind of bad. I, I guess the ambition toward it is is that I don't, I don't think that they would even suggest that or think that there you could right. I think it's more about just the, the sort of perspectival many groundings of different knowledges and a mutuality between people that that people could talk sort of on the same level about those things. But uh, that's I mean maybe thirty steps ahead of
6: this. is that answer the question that you're getting at or am I still yeah no no least? it's getting there um it's just what i see in that like because i agree with you that that suggestion of a of a more authentic mutual dialogue between those two voices mm-hmm. could lead then to a shared a, a shared understanding sure that both would have so the western uh scientific pharmacist all of a sudden that worldview gets a little cracked open to an alternative way of knowing yeah. that's seen as legitimate and it so that so there's this mutual reinforcing like i mean i i kid, I could bore you with some Donald Davidson and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But what I, I guess what I'm getting at is that the condition of possibility for that to be possible is that you all always already inhabit a shared world, right? And mm. so there is a violence done when you say my viewpoint is the one that covers the universal truth to the exclusion of yours. But there, for me, there still has to be this recognition that we're – that we share a context that we can talk about together and learn about from that Uh-oh. our different perspectives, each contribute to a richer understanding of, and that's an ongoing process that we have to keep open and not letting a canon close it down. Cause there's different ways of taking canons, right? Canons can close it down, but canons can also sort of be uh, it's, it's the same way with the Bible, how you what your hermeneutic of scripture is, is it something that's closed between Genesis and revelation or does it contain models itself for how you go into situations and, uh, and 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 it becomes a helpful guide but not necessarily a constraint or a limiter. Mm-hmm.
1: So. so so yeah, the I think canon that, could be like that too I think like that's in the western canon. Yeah, that's a helpful uh clarification on that question. So yeah, I think that the the decolonial approach then would be to to yeah, that there's a shared context that it can be talked about. Yeah, it's not like I guess it's it's uh I mean the the idea behind decolonialism, at least in the the folks I'm reading, is that it's it's towards that mutuality of like a better understanding, but a more just understanding for people in in those circuits of communication. Yeah.
5: Well, the parade of white men continues. <laughs>
1: hey, I'm, I'm here too. Yeah.
5: So I mean, one of the things, uh, one of the points that strikes me uh, that um, that needs to be made is that there's you know, for the West, there's no getting around that colonialism is just part of our history. Mm -hmm. So whatever comes after colonialism, you know, provided that we as a civilization are able to engage in some kind of metanoia and uh, turning from uh, the trajectories that brought us into the colonial project, um, whatever that's going to be, it's going to be something after colonialism in which colonialism has as many vestiges um, as pre colonialism and so on and so forth. Like, we carry the whole string ball of historical experience with us. So, there's, it strikes me that, uh, I think maybe that's where Jim come, come, comes in too with his, uh, his slight allergy to decolonialism. Because so that strikes me as a revolutionary project. Like, and that is a Western hegemonic uh, uh, attitude. It's like, we can obliterate this. And start over. Well, that's a rational project that comes right out of the Enlightenment. It's exactly right in the exact same framework that that uh, produces colonialism. So I don't see that as uh, a way out. What, what I was going to suggest is if you look at uh, real civilizational change, uh, at least in the one culture that I know, and that's the Mediterranean world as it, uh, and its European hinterlands that then in the Middle Ages becomes, uh, uh isolated from the Mediterranean world and develops in idiosyncratic ways. But, okay, so that, that's what I know. So the move, uh, to, um, uh, a, a world of pre Christian paganism into the, uh, into a world of, uh, where, uh, where Christians are culturally dominant. Um, what's really fascinating, and in the Reformation <coughs> tradition we call it synthesis, and we have all kinds of choice words about that, of an evaluative kind, and so on and so forth, but the idea is, is that you carry it all with you, but what it means is open to modification through juxtaposition. So, in other words, you know, when, uh, you know, when Rome becomes a Christian city, uh, you see this viscerally, uh, because the wall is extended to include the Vatican cemetery. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, cemeteries do not belong in the city, because the city is the place of life, and the cemetery is say, the mm-hmm. place of death. It's, to be in a cemetery is to be ritually... In pure, you can't participate in the, the cult that supports the life of the city and so on and so forth. So, so what happens is a juxtaposition. The Roman city begins to change its meaning when, via, via the involvement of the cemetery, um, there is a, a new juxtaposition that has to be taken into account. So meaning is transformed slowly, very slowly, Um, you know, this is what structuralists noticed, and uh, they didn't notice something uh, fictional, they noticed something real, that civilizational change happens very, very slowly, you can't just think it away, and I don't think that's what you're arguing, but it strikes me that we will be taking colonialism with us until, uh, you know, our our lord wipes our tears away, right, which doesn't doesn't mean that you don't resist it but it's you're resisting something, uh, not obliterating it.
1: You just you just can't. Yeah. Um, so there's a few different thoughts about that in at least the the decolonial scholars I've read. Um, so some of them. Um, okay. So first of all, the idea of revolution, um, like being a revolutionary project, I think that's pretty valid. Um, I think that's true. Uh, there are different ways to think through revolution uh, in terms of uh, being a western idea and, and not there's a few few folks that that do point that out um, Walter Manolo points is specifically um, not a revolutionary though he's I, or, I mean at least he's not a Marxist in that sense he always says that those that the idea of revolution that the, especially in the terms of in in the context of like marxist theory is a western idea it it wouldn't work in in south america because it doesn't take into consideration the local knowledges um it
5: hasn't worked very
1: well in the west either it's arguable i guess but okay (laughs) (laughs) i'm a fan but that's fine um i but i mean the the larger point you you said is, is correct though right it's like it's not going away it's not it's it's not like even if there was some type of like really great communist revolution or something that that colonialism would end it's it's not true it wouldn't happen um maybe it would help who knows um (laughs) but uh i think that you're right i think what you're recognizing is is um it's not going to go away um that there's no way there's no easy way out of it um and that it probably won't end until until jesus comes back until some kind of eschatological event happens um i think What's important, though, is that we still find ways to comport ourselves in the world, that we that we do figure out how to resist people, that we figure out how to uh, live Christian lives in light of colonialism. How do we how do we deal with that history as like as Christians? I, I don't know. It's it's so uncomfortable because we have to. We I mean, Christianity is that type of religion that it's like it's about it's about doing something to become like clean in a way. Right. Like it's about that salvation moment. And this is a problem that, like, maybe we can absolve ourselves personally from, but like in the context of our culture, we can't really. There's a complicity that we can't really get away from, um, and even a revolution wouldn't change that complicity. And even a lot of times, uh, the desire for revolution is is to get away from that old system, right? But I don't think that would even do it. So I bet your your point's right. Yeah, it's um, it it's hard. You you can't just step away from it you can't make a radical break with uh the baggage of colonialism it's something that we have to find other ways to deal with
5: but in your discussion there are people who recognize this and and in other words the discussion that you're accessing and
1: yeah some some folks are um so, so i mean there's so much going on in terms of that that discourse like there's um there's sort of a camp that's that argues not for decolonization but de-westernization like wouldn't it be interesting if uh if if like um if china had sort of the hegemonic epistemic uh position in in the world and and there are people that like talk about like what that would mean and, and why that could be the case um there are people who like um I mean, and then there are people who are just you know they are they are decolonial, but they're also Marxists, and like they um, they hold the position that like you know um, maybe a uh, a revolutionary change wouldn't make, like get rid of the problem altogether, but it would make things a whole lot better, right? And then there are people that think that well, revolution is just not gonna wouldn't wouldn't do anything at all politically. So yeah, there's a variety of viewpoints there. Too.
5: Thanks. I'll yeah. Get out of the chair and let somebody else. <laughs>
4: Uh, I guess I was wondering if you could maybe speak more to the practical side that you mentioned somewhat briefly. I mean, you talked about, like, you know, creation of syllabi and all these things. Yeah. Um, But then you also mentioned the possibility of uh, institutions themselves somehow holding, like, accreditation bodies accountable to allowing for these kind of things to happen. And I'm just wondering, like, to what extent do or would institutions have that kind of power specifically towards accreditation bodies or, you know, the powers that be in that regard? And also, I guess, less less institutionally, um, what kind of a responsibility do you think, or, you know, could you talk around, like, what kind of responsibility those institutions might bear toward educating their other support systems, such as, like, donors or, you know, interested parties? like to what degree are they also should they also want to like educate them on these kinds of things because often there's a there's a disconnect between Uh, especially in christian institutions (laughs) between you know the people who support them and how they're trying to educate people yeah sorry (laughs) no it's good
1: it's a really good question uh i mean it's hard because hmm so, because like we you know we say the word institution like it is like a monolith or something, but like institutions are unique and they all have their own specific contours and textures to them. And talking about them in any type of like sort of like universal way is like you know you can't. It's so hard. So my school deals with an organization called the HLC, the Higher Learning Commission. It's in the United States. And the higher learning commission has all kinds of rules and things that we need to do to be an accredited university. And like, for the most part, it's fine. Like bureaucracy is not all bad. Um, It makes people do assessment and make sure we're tracking student success. And that's awesome. Great. Good stuff. But it also does keep us really pigeonholed in the types of departments we have and like who's qualified to teach them. That's the part that makes me a little more upset. So in, in my case, um to teach in, i this is probably just true of the united states but at least in my in my region right to teach an undergraduate class you have to have 18 credit hours in that topic which is not really that much but you know kind of and you have you have to have it in that field right so if you want to teach communication you'd have to be someone that has a communication degree um, and that kind of rubs me the wrong way though because that's in- reinforcing some pretty arbitrary lines um not, not that disciplines are all made up, but disciplines are like a little bit made up. Um, so finding ways to subvert that type of thing is extremely desirable to me to find ways to get um, more interdisciplinary talks, more kind of like um, different people in different uh, in, in the context, like different people in the context of different disciplines is, is I think, a great idea, but it, it's hard to do that because there are people actively keeping you from doing that. So I don't know how you really act against them because they just, they'll just say like, sorry, now you're not accredited and that's not what you want either. Um, so it, a lot of that is just like, I don't know. Um, the way that I get around at Greenville is I co-teach classes with people. And um, so I have a philosopher coming to communication classes and I'm a, uh, I'm a media theorist and I go to philosophy classes. Right. So we have like the sort of like, interdisciplinary conversations where we have radically different types of conversations. If if it was just a media studies class or just a philosophy class. Um, And, and I think that's probably a good place to start at least sort of like technically because of the structures of power, Um, just getting some weird classes that cross the lines and blur the blur the canons that I think are uh, like expected or something. Um, The donor question is really hard uh, because institutions are so beholden to them. I mean, some I don't know. Um, <laughs> my institution, uh, I just recently found out, only ten percent of our of our like funding comes from donors, and the rest of it comes from students. And that's changed my perspective radically. Because when an administrator gets up and says, "Well, we can't do this because of donors," it's just like, "Well, With that yeah." Well, <laughs> see, that's what, that's what I mean. I, I mean, institutions are monoliths, but. Um, yeah, I don't know how you, I, I mean, you need a good public relations person to kind of explain why you're adjusting the program to like meet these new educational requirements and stuff like that. Um, I think that's, that's doable. I think it, it, it's actually a really admirable thing that you even, that you'd even want to do that, that you'd want to try to like educate your, um, alumni or your donors about why you think this change is really important. I think that's a great idea. Um, I mean, usually people just try to like, in, in my experience, institutions try to play to the, to the desires of their uh, their donor base rather than trying to adjust their donor base to the desires of the institution. So flipping that is, a, I think, a really cool idea. Um, it, it, I mean, it is definitely a public relations goal, though. <laughs> like, it's like, I think you need a, a good communicator to make that a, that happen. Um, dang, that's a good idea. <laughs> cool. Um, sorry, and there's another question you had, too? and no, I can't remember. No? No,
4: I think that was, that was everything.
1: Did I sufficiently answer your questions? Yeah, that's good. Wonderful.
0: Listening to Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a really helpful thing. It helps people to find us, and it keeps us at the top of the iTunes charts. You can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu.